Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. And guys, we have been recapping some of the greatest hits and misses of our cases that we had on Reasonable Doubt. We have a new case that we're going to look at and we're going to talk to somebody that has some special insight into a case like this. But before we get into it, let me bring into my partner, Fatima Silva. Are you there? Hey, everyone. How's it going, partner? I'm well. I am doing very well. This has been good. a great week for me. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't get to say that very often, do I? No, you don't. So I'm <laughs> excited to hear that. Yeah, I'm excited for our guest. I'm always excited for our guests. We honestly, I feel like we're so lucky to get the people on every week we've been having on. Mm-hmm. It is such a treat to get to pick these people's brains, hear their stories. And tonight is no different. Such an honor to have our guests on tonight. I'm going to tell you about him in a minute. But yes, we are also going to be talking about a case that was on reasonable doubt. And he does have some insight into that case. But even more importantly, he also is an author, just like yourself, Chris, and has a book coming out. So I've been chasing him down for a few months because I've been wanting him on the podcast to talk about a case we have in common. But we're waiting to finally have him on now because his book is going to be coming out. And this is huge, everyone. Please support our authors who are writing these amazing books on justice, on wrongful conviction. Support them because these are stories that are important and crucial for you to know about. And we want them to keep writing about them because the more these stories get out there, the more people learn, that's what changes our justice system. Remember, Chris and I have this podcast. Main reason is, yeah, we like to chat and joke and have deep conversation about true crime and cases. but The main reason is we look at all you listeners as possible jurors one day. And if you have some serious wisdom and knowledge when it comes to our justice system and how it works and understanding evidence, all of the above, then you are going to make the best decisions in those courtrooms. And you should be making the best decisions because imagine it was you or a family member that were the defendants. You would want a jury 
that is really going to consider everything and that is going to have some insight on the way our justice system works. So this is why we bring you all the cases we do every week and our amazing guests. And tonight we have dun, 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 Mr. Justin Brooks, the founding director of the California Innocence Project. He's, he's like my celebrity, everyone. Justin Brooks is a criminal defense lawyer, law professor, and the founding director of the California Innocence Project, where he has spent decades freeing innocent people from prison. He is the author of the only legal casebook devoted to the topic of wrongful convictions and was portrayed by the Academy Award-nominated actor Greg Kinnear in the feature film Brian Banks. I know I think a lot of you have seen that movie. If you haven't, go watch it. So good. Justin Brooks has spent his career freeing innocent people from prison. That's the most noble career you could have. Mm -hmm. With You Might Go to Prison, Even Though You're Innocent, this is his new book. He offers up-close accounts of the cases that he has fought, embedding them with a larger landscape of innocence claims and robust research on what we know about the causes of wrongful convictions. This book forces us to consider how any of us might be swept up in this system, whether we hired a bad lawyer, bear a slight resemblance to someone else in the world, or we're just not good with awkward silences, like myself. The stories of Brooks's cases and clients paint the picture of a broken justice system, one where innocence is no protection from incarceration or even the death penalty. Simultaneously relatable and disturbing, you might go to prison even though you're innocent is a central reading for anyone who wants to better understand how injustice is served by our system. So welcome to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast, Mr. Justin Brooks. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Justin, for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to talk with us about some of the injustice that happens in our system. You know, I'm in law enforcement and I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope we can bring some of that to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. One thing that we'd like to do here is we like to bring our listeners in to, to enjoy a little bit of cookie juice with us. And I know you've already began your journey on cookie juice. So uh, I'll ask <laughs> you, what are you drinking with us tonight? I have a delicious California Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir. That's my go-to. Yeah, it is your um, go-to. Not too heavy, not too sweet, <laughs> just perfect. Exactly. Right, right, right. Are you a big wine drinker? Do you enjoy wine at the end of your days? Yes, I, I do. I a little too much during COVID. I got into a little bit of a routine of five. We all did. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so one good. day I started having a headache when I hadn't had it by seven, and I thought, oh, maybe I got to back off this little. Bit. <laughs> the withdrawal is probably a problem. Right, right, right. Well, thank weird. you for drinking with us tonight. As we mentioned recently, everyone, I, I'm on water now. Doctor's orders. Wah, wah, wah. Boom, Things you do boom. to try to make a baby. Not that old-fashioned way anymore, guys. Lots of science involved <laughs> when you're <laughs> as old as I am. But Chris, you're drinking. What you sipping on over there? I am drinking. So tonight I'm having a, a little bit of Knob Creek. Knob Creek is a straight bourbon whiskey. It's still made to exacting standards according to its website. It's an exceptional full-bodied bourbon that strikes the senses of oak aroma with a sweet and woody full-bodied taste, mm -hmm. almost fruity, with a long-lasting and a rich finish. That's what it says on the website. I just know it's pretty good. <laughs> I, it does have a woody flavor to it, though. I like Knob Creek. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a nice, good one, easy one. 
I just recently looked up actually, because I was having a conversation with someone of what is the most American drink and people were guessing different things. And the most American drink is bourbon bourbon because it only can be called bourbon Mm -hmm. if it's made in Kentucky, anywhere else in the world. That's right. It's like Um, champagne has to come from champagne in France. That's right. That's right. Things I've learned since doing this podcast. That's right. And as a matter of fact, if I'm correct, if I'm not, we can delete this portion. But I think today is International Whiskey Day. Oh, is it yeah, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Shame I, I heard about us. that today. We were supposed oh, to bring that out today. But you know oh, what? Oh, man. I should have just made an exception. Just kidding. No, no. You, you're well, happy, happy Whiskey Day to everyone. We hope you all have your cookie juice. Uh, as you know. It's the one thing Chris and I love to pour on the road when we are going through heaps of evidence and we just needed to go slowly and take our time. That's what we needed was a bourbon because nobody chugs a bourbon. If you do, you've got problems. That's and right. um, we're going to recommend that you find your local AA meeting. Okay, There's a 12-step um, program with your name yes. on it. Yes, you need Jesus. <laughs> um, just kidding, everyone. We're not judging here, but really no. do not chug bourbon. <laughs> Don't recommend it. Or your wine. Pinot Noir, too. Um, well, tell us, Justin, what, what made you write this book? I mean, you've been doing this for decades. This is your first book, like leisure reading, kind of, it's not a legal textbook. What made you finally write this book? Well, I'm glad you point out it's not a legal textbook because that's really (laughs) was what it was all about. Um, you know, I've written a legal textbook. I've been teaching a course on wrongful convictions in law schools for many years to law students. And I wanted to write a book to get the regular people to understand how easy it is to be wrongfully convicted and not wait until it happens to them or happens to a family member. And I wanted to write it in very basic terms. So the, the actual first title of the book that my publisher said was too clickbaity was top 10 reasons you might go to prison, even though you're innocent. And <laughs> I uh, like that I, too. Right. And yeah, and I, I started thinking about that. That way I literally was sitting on a plane and on a United Airlines napkin, starting to write out kind of from my experience, what were reasons that people don't really think about, about why they're wrongfully convicted. So for instance, one of the chapters is called, you look like other people in the world, where I get into how many of my clients have been wrongfully convicted based on bad IDs. Another chapter is called, you you don't like being kept up all night and being yelled at. I get into why some, we know now 17% of people exonerated by DNA had confessed to those crimes. So we know definitively that innocent people confess. And then some stuff, one chapter I get into something that was really, I don't think anyone has really talked about. And that is the fact that there's more wrongful convictions in rural areas and inner city areas for very particular reasons. In rural areas, in my experience, the police do not have the training and equipment to process crime scenes really well. And so mistakes get made. And in inner city areas, you see over-policing happen where people get caught up in nets um, where they're innocent. And I've had those cases where, you know, they arrest everybody on a street because drugs are being dealt there. And then there's randomly one person who's actually just walking through. But because under our drug possession laws, that. you don't have yeah. yeah, you don't have to have the drugs on you. Um, they can be in a new location. 
it's safest to live like in the burbs and the boring burbs. In the suburbs, those, that is those, correct. <laughs> you know, little where all the little boxes on the hillside where all the houses are kind of the same, and those little subdivisions, those are probably the best places where you may not end up wrongfully convicted. In terms of that one chapter, yes. Because <laughs> in, there you the go. Burbs, <laughs> in the suburbs, the police can be there fairly quickly from the cities that have the capacity to process crime scenes. Um, but I think by the end of reading this book, when you get through it, uh, you realize any it can happen to anybody. Um, right. You know, one of my clients, Kim Long, middle class white woman nurse, and she came home one day and found her boyfriend beaten to death. And and that's one of my chapters is you come home and find your partner dead. And mm -hmm. if it's not obvious who the suspect is, often the police go down the line at looking at their partners because there is such a high incidence of murder within partnerships. I mean, domestic violence murder is the leading cause of murder. So you will become a suspect fairly quickly. And she had the unfortunate situation that she got in an argument with her boyfriend earlier in the day. So there's witnesses saying they were in an argument. Now we got motive. They have her on the scene. Now they got opportunity. And that was enough to ultimately get her convicted and spend seven years in prison for a murder she didn't commit until we definitively proved that she was innocent. I got to meet Kim at the gala. She's an amazing human being. And her story is terrifying. And this is in the book, everyone. It's a really good case to read about. But I remember thinking that how one of the main points is the last time you were with your significant other, you were fighting. And I thought, ooh, never leave the, never leave the house until you make up, maybe. Because, gosh, I mean, if all of us were judged based on that, we'd all we all could be guilty easily that was a, a really scary case and, and just an unlikely person to commit a crime but yet there she was convicted well it goes against a lot of the stereotypes and then you know, the last chapter in my book is devoted to race and poverty and it actually it took me i think almost as long to write that chapter as the entire rest of the book because with everything else in the book i could point to here are the factors that caused the wrongful conviction. Here's what I litigated in court to get that conviction reversed. But race and poverty is just something that's, that completely permeates our criminal legal system. But it's always much harder to point to. And it's only obvious when we take a 30,000-foot view of it and start looking at the statistics. And then we see how impactful it is. And so I get into some of the studies that show, for example, look at the race of victims, it's one of the most definitive things in terms of whether you're going to be wrongfully convicted. Because our society, the bottom line is, more attention is paid to cases with white victims. And particularly with white women, there's literally a thing called white women syndrome, where a white woman will go missing, and that'll be a news story. Mm -hmm. And they'll find her dead. And now that'll be a bigger news story. And then a prosecutor will step into the limelight of that news story and then push for the maximum sentence. We're going to trial. We're going for the death penalty. And so when you look at race of victims, it's like the leading cause of whether you're going to get the death penalty or not in the United States. And that's just mm -hmm. fundamentally wrong. I'm glad you laid out all of the different <laughs> issues this book targets. It's, it's so huge. And you basically summarized all five seasons of Reasonable Doubt and the kinds yeah. of cases that we've seen, the issues that we've seen when it comes to convictions, these common issues that come up, and the race issue. So uh, tell me this, Justin. How long had you been writing the book before you got finally got it published? 
I mean, in a way, I've been writing the book for 32 years in my head. <laughs> but in between all the, it really is a summation of all the conversations, all the lectures, mm. all the teaching, all the cases. So I went to, I'm very fortunate. I have a 240-year-old little stone cottage in Northern England that I go hide in every once in a while. Right, right, in a right. Little village where my wife is from, where the, the worst crimes that happen are people steal shopping carts from the local supermarket. So oh, how nice. So I can go and just like relax. Right. And I spent about a month there, just my head pouring onto the keyboard and banging the whole thing out. And then I spent like a year editing it. Mm -hmm. and refining it and then going into the research to back up a lot of stuff that I was saying and check the statistics on all that to to make it accurate. So it was uh, and it was it was it was it was an interesting sort of catharsis and going back through. I mean, I've had I've been lucky to walk 38 innocent people out of prison. Um, wow. I, I the first chapter I got into why I got into innocence work. And that was a woman who I uh, learned was on death row. Um, and she had been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And this mm. was 27 years ago. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry, a plea bargain. So, I mean, there's there's something worse than death. What in the world? Exactly. Like, what, what else was on the table? Torture? Yeah. Torture, it's, yeah. It's a plea. My goodness. It's not a bargain. So... <laughs> uh, I met with her on death row and I find this kid at 21 years old. And I heard, she told me that her lawyer told her pleading out was the best thing to do. And I said, pleading out, but with no offer of anything and getting the death penalty. And she said, um, yeah. And I said, well, okay. And then she said, and I'm innocent. I said, you're innocent and you pled out, you got the death penalty. Yes. So I went back to the law school where I was teaching in Michigan told my class that I said, who wants to help me out on this? And four kids raised their hands and we sat around my kitchen table that night and started going through the paperwork and the police reports. And that weekend we piled into my Jeep and drove to the crime scene and found out that the only witness was clearly lying because the, the murder had happened more than 400 feet from her apartment. And it was impossible to see what she said she saw. And then I found out that, of course, the one person in the city of Chicago who claimed to see this murder also happened to be the girlfriend of the victim, which isn't on any police report, so it wasn't disclosed to anyone. But my client made the unfortunate mistake that I've seen a lot of people make, and that is she fired her experienced public defender, who was this woman who'd handled hundreds of cases and really experienced, and hired some guy in the neighborhood and gave him a $10,000 retainer who never handled anything remotely like it. And I started that case when I was 29 years old. I finished this, that case this past October. It took me 27 years to fully get her out of prison and get her exonerated. Wow. I started the case when I was 29. I finished it at 57. Oh, and That's amazing. What is that feeling like all these years? I would think, honestly, Justin, I would think I've, I've done my great deed in life. I have all my jewels on my crown. And... I'm done. <laughs> That's years of hard work. But here you are. You keep going, which is amazing. I often say I wish this work was more like a Grisham novel because that's mm. what happens in every Grisham novel. You win one case and you walk off into the sunset. 
You're Unfortunately, done. you go back to your office, there's another pile of cases on your desk. Well, because <laughs> you're hooked, right? Story. At that point, you're, you're just like, this is possible. And if, if nobody else is fighting this for this person, I have to do. Yeah. And I, I think I felt like that for a lot of years. I think now my life is transitioning a little bit in that when I started doing innocence work, there were only a handful of us in the United States who were doing it. And we, our first meeting, we all shared a pizza in Chicago back in 1998. And then we started these various projects. New York had a project. Chicago had a project. Washington. Now we have 60 projects in the United States, and we have projects all around the world. Um, and I, I spent my formative years in Puerto Rico and learned how to speak Spanish. And now I spend about a third of my time in Latin America training lawyers how to do this work. And now I'm in that, I guess, phase of my life. I'm still handling cases. I'm still doing stuff here in the U.S., but I think I have more value actually with whatever time I have left to impact Latin America. So I've helped start 35 now innocence organizations from Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, Costa Rica, a bunch of Mexico. When and, do you uh, sleep? I'm My goodness. Sleep at all. <laughs> wow. It just seems like so much work and, and so much ambition. But thank you for what you do. Thank you for putting in all that work. Because of you, there are people who are able to get out of prison. There are people who are able to have hope. And you're teaching the rest of us. As somebody who hosts a show like Reasonable Doubt, I was constantly looking at the California Innocence Project and what they're doing. I've attended some of your events and followed the cases. And it's inspiring. I'm so lucky to get to do meaningful work, you know, as a lawyer. And, you know, we know a lot of lawyers who are not necessarily happy with their lives and their careers. My, my brother's a condominium lawyer in Boston. He's made a lot of money in his career. But <laughs> I just, I'm lucky to do meaningful work, get up every day and be motivated by my work, even, you know, in my late 50s. So, um, no, I just consider myself lucky. Wow. Well, you've helped dozens of people walk out of prison. Which case sticks with you the most? I mean, it's sort of like picking from your children in a way. Who's your <laughs> mm. child? Right, right, right. Um, I mean, clearly Marilyn's case stuck, Marilyn Malero's case stuck with me the most because I spent 27 years working on it. And every time I was walking someone out of prison, it was always in the back of my head, she's going to see this on TV. It's mm. not going to be over. It's going to be another time to fail to get her out. And that, that case frustrated me for so long, for so, I mean, just ate at me for decades. So I'd have to say that case, but mm -hmm. every case is an important story. It tells us something about what's wrong with our criminal legal system. We can learn from each case. Uh, the Brian Banks case was, mm -hmm. you know, also stuck. Made into a movie. Free. Yeah. Yeah. Because I spent eight years with, you know, the movie people making the movie out of it. And that was sort of a surreal experience to see Greg Kinnear playing me in a movie and, you know, going to the movie set and seeing my desk with all the little things I have on my desk exactly re reproduced and my ties and my suit. So I guess, but, you know, Mike Hanline, my client who I walked out after 36 years in prison, mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it was an unthinkable amount of time. So yeah, wow. if, if every case this is meaningful to me. And that's what by writing this book, I was glad that I could talk about all those cases and, and pay a little tribute to my clients and what they've contributed really mm -hmm. with their loss in terms of our knowledge right. of what goes wrong and what's wrong with the system and to get other people to read those stories. And as you guys said earlier, become educated jurors and become educated voters mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we are barraged with all this 
fear-based legislation. And, and there's no area more corrupted by politics. There's no area of law more corrupted than criminal law. Because mm -hmm. pe people don't run for office on, I'm going to reform contract law. I'm going to reform the law of the sea. They run for office saying, I'm going to lock more people up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put more police on the street. I'm going to build more prisons. I'm going to make you safe. And then the question is, you know, what really does make us safe? And, and those of us who've studied the system know, know that it's not the simple answers. It's much more complex as to, mm -hmm. to address our system. You know, we've, we now have the largest prison system in the world. We have one of the highest recidivism rates in the world. We lock up the highest percentage of our population of any country in the world. And one of the questions I pose in my book is, you know, we have to ask ourselves as Americans, why does the richest country in the world, when there's a direct relationship between economics and crime, why is the richest country in the world locking up more people than any other country? Because mm -hmm. that just doesn't make any sense. And the reason we do is because of politics. Mm -hmm. Politics have driven us. It's terrifying. It really is. You had mentioned small towns, rural areas, wrongful convictions happen oftentimes. We've seen it where there's just connections. You kind of see a lot of it in the Murdoch trials that were recently happening. A powerful family, legal family in these small towns that can make things go away, that can be the determining factor of whether somebody is arrested or not. And you see that happening in a lot of wrongful conviction cases. And it's scary because it really does come down to who is in control. And in our country, it's about where do you live? Where are you going to be convicted? Is it going to be Texas or is it going to be somewhere like New York and California? And that's not to say wrongful convictions don't happen in those places. But at the same time, those punishments definitely look different, right? Or a lot of what you're facing looks different depending on where you're living. And so you can be in the United States, but it really comes down to exactly where are you living and your rights are going to look different. These stories are not just for entertainment. They're to make you really think. And it's almost like reasonable doubt. A lot of people would say, I had no idea those things happen. Mm -hmm. It's like pulling the veil off and saying, look, this is the truth of what happened. And this can happen. And people are going, no way, not in the U.S. No way. Yes, here. They're left with this outrage. And I always find when you have outrage, that's going to move you to action. Mm -hmm. And, and it is very strange, by the way, to the rest of the world. I spend a lot of time traveling around the world that we do have 50-some penal codes, 50-some jurisdictions that you can be on one side of the street and the punishment's the death penalty, the other side of the street, the punishment 12 years. You can have drugs legal in one area, not legal. Most of the world doesn't operate like that. You're within right. a country that has a penal code and you follow it. But And you, know, you can debate the, the value of that. Of, of letting Texas be Texas, letting California be California, letting New York be New York. And maybe that's one of the reasons the union has stayed together for a couple hundred years. But it's a very bizarre system compared to the way the rest of the world functions. Mm -hmm. I we went to Louisiana and we found out this one individual we were helping, he was convicted, but it wasn't unanimous verdict. I remember. Yeah. I was like, no, wait, wait, let me, let me reread this. Hold on. I, I'm sure I learned in law school at some point, but I had been in practice so long in California. It was just something that I really couldn't even fathom that somebody that you could be convicted, sentenced to life in prison. You didn't even have a unanimous verdict. The Supreme Court just made that mandatory this year. Mm -hmm. So 
there has been, I think there were three separate jurisdictions where mm -hmm. non-unanimous verdicts. And yeah, and my argument was like, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt if there were jurors who disagreed. Right. Like, how, how does the math work in that? Uh, what does beyond a reasonable doubt mean if only nine out of 12 have to believe you did it? That's... Oh, that? Yeah, now I've been in law enforcement almost 30 years, and that was eye-opening to me, for me to hear that there were still states, places that you didn't have to have a unanimous decision. That was just kind of just mind-blowing to me. You talked a little bit about race and how it impacts our criminal justice system. And I just want to get into that a little bit more because, you know, I might Black Southern police officer from Birmingham, Alabama. Fatima is a, a Latina woman from California. We are two people that if we are not all the way pro-Black, all the way pro-people of color, you know, uh, we are not advocating for our own. We have the folks that are yelling and screaming. We're not doing enough for our own communities. Um, on our show, we've had people say in one season, despite the fact that we help people from across the board, I'll be honest, my issue a lot of times with a reasonable doubt was we never had a lot of other people of color. It was never an Asian family, Indian family. I mean, we definitely would try to get those stories on. And for some reason or another, we couldn't. But it was a lot of white or black. And there were people who would say, oh, you all just only help black people. And then mm -hmm. there were people who would say, you all just only help white people. I'm like, right. well, which is it? <laughs> um, you know, but, but one uh, thing we saw going to that, Chris, and we talked about this, and it's, you could probably speak on this more as well in all your cases, Justin, but one thing we noticed oftentimes was the street crimes where there's just less evidence that's needed and it's it's based on some faulty identification. It's oftentimes a person of color. And those are the kind of crimes that end up with wrongful conviction. So it's not like we were picking those people to help. It was the kind of crime they were charged with. And that's how we ended up with that case. So, yeah, tell us a little more about what impact you saw race play. Sure. Well, first of all, in the more obvious ones, I've walked six people out of prison who were wrongfully convicted based on cross-racial identifications. Um, and I have literally now zero confidence in cross-racial identifications unless the person knows the other person fairly mm -hmm. well. And, and explain what that is. We've told listeners oh, before, but explain that. A person of one race identifying a person of another race. Mm -hmm. And I spent time training lawyers on this topic because we're really not good at talking about race in this country. Right. And lawyers are not comfortable talking to jurors about it. And the way I explain it, if I'm in front of a jury or in front of a group, is that in the first four years of our life, we learn 80% of what we're going to learn for the rest of our lives. We learn about a million objects. We learn how to start speaking a language. We learn you know, how to control gravity when we're walking. There's like 80% of what we got to learn in life, we learn. And during that time, we develop our facial recognition software. And it starts with you can identify your mother right away based on smell and sound because you've been connected to her. And then you can identify your father. And then you start identifying people around you by using that software where you look at eyes, nose, mouth, mom, eyes, nose, mouth, brother, eyes, nose, mouth. And during that process, if mom's white, dad's white, everyone around them's white, for the rest of your life, you're not going to be able to identify people of color at the same capacity as you can white people. Mm -hmm. And I use the example that 
I spent all my teenage years in Puerto Rico. I was the only gringo in my high school. And so I was surrounded by Puerto Ricans every single day. I saw nothing but Puerto Ricans. And I'm pretty good at identifying Puerto Ricans, but I'm, I'm not as good as someone who's Puerto Rican because I didn't develop that capacity at a young age. And I think if we could just have a conversation about race for once, that wasn't about, this is about prejudice. This is about a scientific just thing. Then this wouldn't happen as much. And jurors would look at it and say like, oh, okay, I get that. Um, and particularly when we look at identifications of Asians in this country, it is mm -hmm. incredible how bad it is. It's like, can't even identify whether someone's Chinese or Japanese or Thai or any of those. Can't even pinpoint a country. Can't even pinpoint, which are dramatically different looking people. I mean, Japan is islands. China was an isolated culture. Maybe Southeast Asia, there was more movement of people. And it's even worse, by the way, in Latin America. I mean, in Mexico, when I ask a group, what do you call someone who's from China? They'll say Chino. And I'll say, what do you call someone who's from Japan? They'll say Chino. Chino. What do you call someone from Thailand? They're Chino. They call everyone yeah. Asian. They're all Chinese. And, and when you look at some of those populations where there's, not, where there's hardly any diversity, places mm -hmm. like Chile, well, there's hardly any diversity in the population. They are atrocious at making these IDs. So there's first that problem with race. But that one, that's one I can explain to a judge. I can go and say, judge, look at the science, look at the all these bad cases, take a look at these pictures. This went wrong. Here's what went off the rails. The more difficult issue of race, and it's why in my book, I start, I go through our whole racial history with the criminal legal system from Jim Crow laws to all the stuff that was overt racism, because now we're in a period of time of covert racism and it's much harder to police mm -hmm. because it's about just people's inherent biases that they bring every day into a courtroom. And to not believe the criminal legal system is racist is to believe our society isn't racist because it's just a microcosm of a bunch of people from our general society that go into a courthouse every day and make decisions. And, and I'll give you an example of one of those influences is I practiced law in, in Washington, D.C. when I first came out of law school. And at that time, D.C. was the murder capital of the world. Every single day, a young black man was killed in D.C., every single day. And every single day, it was in the metro section. And whatever of the Washington Post, which was known as most progressive paper in the country, Whenever a white person was killed in D.C., it was in the front section of the paper. And reporters would literally say, because that's news. It's not news that another 17-year-old black kid got killed in Southeast D.C. today. That's not news. And that's where it kind of begins, where we put different values, we put different exposure, and it ends up in different results. I saw judges in D.C., if I had a white client, judges would literally be more hesitant to send them to Lorton Prison. Because Lorton Prison was known when it was 97% black. And it was seen as that would have been a greater punishment for a white guy to be sent there than a black person. And people would openly talk about things like that. And now I think we're at a period of time where people won't necessarily openly talk about that. Mm -hmm. But it's still happening because it's mm -hmm. still on the lines. And, and one of the studies that I found when I was writing this book was a study that used um, AI to have people watch trials. Of, not AI, virtual reality. And they, all they would do on the trials is change the race of the defendant. And they found out through these studies that there were different verdicts and wildly different sentences. Because 
if people, people can't create empathy as well for people who aren't like them. And it's the, it's the reason why if we wake up in the morning, we hear there's an earthquake in India, it doesn't impact us enough as much as we hear there's an earthquake in the United States. Mm. Because we can relate to that. When we see pictures of the Walmart sign falling down and we see things that we connect with, it, it brings out our emotions more and our response. And that's, it's human. And but that's the thing. It's, it's human nature. And if we're not talking about it, if you're just not addressing it in a courtroom in general and reminding people of these natural tendencies that we have, right? It's not just saying it's white people or to do it or blacks. You're saying it could be uh, me as the Latina just looking at somebody of another race or what I'm surrounded with or my lack of being exposed to certain people being from California and the Bay Area, especially, I really do pride myself on being able to say, oh, that's a Filipino, oh, Vietnamese, oh, you know, no, that's, they're Japanese. Because other places, you do hear people say, oh, I, I can't tell the difference. But in the Bay Area, it's such a melting pot. So it, it depends on where you live. But if we could talk about these things more and make it the norm of, we naturally do this. You're not a bad person to do it, but let's just be aware of it when you're thinking about the facts of this case. Let's be aware of it when you are discussing punishment because some states, the jury does do the sentencing, even just reminding judges. And we know they have to attend education and panels on this to remind them as well because they do it just as much. We oftentimes have disproportionate sentencing based on race. Why is that? Same evidence, same kind of crime, different race and different sentences. Judges need it more than anybody yeah. because judges are in this country are mostly white men mm -hmm. who are former prosecutors. I mean, they, they right. cookie cutting of it. And you're right. It's interesting you bring up the Bay Area because I tell you another place where, where it's always interesting to me is every couple of years I go out to Hawaii to train public defenders. And Hawaii is the only place in the world that has no majority population. And that is interesting dynamic that it creates in Hawaii. There's nowhere I've been where people more openly talk about race and as comfortable talking about race. And also they have such a mix of everything out there that people are better at making those identifications, mm -hmm. thinking things mm -hmm. through, but they just talk openly about stereotyping and bias and all this. Let's have the conversation. It's okay. That's, that's the only way you're going to improve our system. It's take away, I don't want to talk about it, or I don't want to say anything about it, or feeling uncomfortable having these conversations. You've, you've got to remove it. And that's the only way we're going to make changes within our criminal justice system and a part of this whole world, honestly. Stating the obvious, which is why mm -hmm. I love this book. And I don't have my physical copy yet. I'm excited to, to get that. It's coming out. When it, what is the release date? April 4th. But people can April order it right 4th. now on Amazon.com and it'll be there next week. Yes. You might go to prison even though you're innocent by Justin Brooks. Yes, definitely go to Amazon and order it. But we got a little taste of it already, and mm -hmm. I really appreciated that you discussed the false confessions and the faulty eyewitness identification. It's such a big issue. Chris and I did a whole discussion on this at CrimeCon. We always talk about it. Would you say those are the two most common ways that you would be wrongfully convicted as a false confession or mistaken eyewitness? I think that the two most common that procedures lead to wrongful convictions, for sure. I mean, false testimony is such a broad term that it's hard to not say, you know, and in my book, I get into all the different types of false testimony, you know, 
and you know, witnesses, snitches, people making up crimes, things like that. But yes, when 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 you look at the studies, bad identifications certainly leads the pack. Um, I think in our, the initial study of the first 300 DNA exonerations, it was more than half had bad identifications in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and confessions is a fascinating topic and in some ways the most troubling because every time I talk to a group about it, I say, who here thinks that they would never confess to a crime they didn't commit? And always, I just did this the other night at Point Loma Nazarene University, always there's hands that go up. And that's the problem is you have mm-hmm. jurors that just will not believe it right. because we're in this period of time now where it's not about beating confessions. And I'm not saying that never happens, but it doesn't happen very often. We're in a period of time where psychology is used in confessions and people just don't think that after 12 or 13 hours, even of an interrogation, they're going to you know, give it up. And in my cases, what I see is first of all, Police are trained to use the read technique, and the read technique is not focused on getting the truth. The read technique is getting the suspect to agree with you, and that's a very different thing. And after 12 or 13 hours, people just end up going along with the story the police are telling them, and sometimes they do it just because they're irritated. They'll say things like, okay, you got me. I did it. I'll sign that. Can I get out of here now? Mm -hmm. Because they think they're never going to be. Uh, prosecuted um, because they didn't do it. And and maybe they get a bad ID, maybe they get a snitch, and the next thing you know, they're in prison. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very common, and there's very simple solutions, which is what's frustrating about it. Like, why is it not mandatory in every jurisdiction in the United States to record interrogations? That's a question we have to ask. Like, why is there a resistance? Because when I started practicing law, the argument was, we don't have the equipment. Right. Now, everyone on the planet is carrying out an electronic right. recording device. Fuck it. Mm-hmm. And if everything's being done well, why wouldn't you want it recorded? So right. when that person goes into court right. and they say, I didn't say I did this, you say, well, hold on a minute, chief. Here's you giving a detailed mm-hmm. explanation in response to our basic questions. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, and- We've seen it. And people break. And psychologically, it's pretty easy to do after hours and hours of being told you're not going to leave here unless you say you did it or you can leave here once you say you did it. People just don't understand their rights. There's a lot of people who don't know cops can lie to them. That's something we try to educate everybody on as well. That's why I always say lawyer up from the start. Plead the fifth, stay silent, get yourself a lawyer. You just have to know even if your attorney is there or not, you stay silent because If not, you can end up in these situations even though you're innocent. And that's the purpose of this book. Yeah, there's no value, really. I mean, the only value of answering questions is convenience. So police are asking you questions. You want to resolve this quickly and be on your way. And I understand people's nature to do that. And obviously, if there's no real fear of anything that's going on in that moment, you're going to say whatever. Um, But when people actually get into an interrogation situation, there's no value in because you wouldn't be pulled into a room to be interrogated unless they were more serious about you. And at that point, you need to lawyer up. The police cannot offer you anything. Only the prosecutors can make deals. And the training is towards having that narrative in your head and getting that suspect to agree uh, with that narrative. Chris, did you go through um, retraining? 
So yes, I have gone through read technique. I have spoken out. I know how it has unjustly caused so many people to go to prison. But I do think now in this day and time, a lot of the interrogations that you see are so close to the types of techniques that Reed taught and his, his entire technique gets blamed for some of the wrongdoings that law enforcement officers use. Los Angeles is now using an interesting technique, which is basically awkward silence. So mm -hmm. It's a lot of, instead of. I'd be guilty giving, so fast, Justin. I'd be like, okay, I, I can't take awkward this. Silence. I mean, like, yeah. let me just, yeah. You gotta be, yeah, you can't. I'm like that too, by the way. I'm the, I'm the person. I'm on a road trip. I can't, I can't even take 10 seconds of silence nope. sitting far. I was like, I got to fill it up. Chris is so good with it. Chris, you would be the master of the awkward <laughs> silence. Like, okay. You heard it on here, Justin, because I talk too much and because I'm such a filler. We've learned between us both that I need to take a pause and let Chris talk. But my issue is when I take the pause, Chris is such a thinker and he's like wanting to get his question the right way that there's got to be a few moments of silence and i'm going oh my gosh <laughs> it's been a whole we'll, we'll edit that out later oh my god what are we going oh my god he's also a southerner and that's so it's not that right you know, uh, I am, slower I am, way of talking i, I just Ooh, don't man. i don't chris you get all the convictions let me dude. tell you no but I, they're I don't. using that technique in los really? angeles the idea is and what's better than the read technique is they don't feed the narrative to the right. suspect. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the problem is when you're trying to get someone to agree with your narrative, whether it's your wife to try to convince them of something, or I mean, we all do it when we're arguing. It's like you take your position, now you're trying to convince the other person of your position. So you're feeding it to them over and over again. Mm -hmm. Instead, they just sit there in silence and, yeah. and hear the story. Right. And and eventually, if they want to talk, they just start talking, and then they haven't edited to them. So you know, I I never brag about my my techniques in the interview room, but I am very, I'm a very slow and methodical thinker. When we are doing an inter interrogation or any any of the interrogations that I've been in, I'm I'm very slow because I, I like to listen more. I like to hear what my person is saying. I I want to hear everything that you're saying. I want to give you as many as long as you are willing to talk. I'm not going to interrupt you. I'm going to let you finish your statements. I'm going to let you keep, keep talking. And nine times out of 10, it's worked out well for me. So that, that awkward silence type technique that you're talking about, I've probably done it a million times over and over and over again and not even realize what I was doing. You don't because it comes natural. Yeah. Good lawyers do it on cross-examination mm -hmm. because sometimes, you know, the basic training of a lawyer is don't do open-ended questions on cross. Always have questions that are closed-ended. But sometimes you get that witness who just starts giving you crazy <laughs> you didn't even think you were going to get. And so then you're just going, tell me more about that. <laughs> and that, that is so going. true because I practiced about a decade before actually doing the show. And I thought I was a fantastic interviewer. And then I, I do the show and especially the first season, I go back and I watch that and I cringe. And I remember our producers always saying, Fatima, you need to sit in the awkward silence. You're killing us with this. You know, somebody's having a moment. They're about to say something and then you just move on. Just and it's because, you know, this training is under cross-examination, the questions, you've got to get them out. 
you're on a time crunch and you want to get the answers. But this is not me as a defense attorney on the show. I'm interviewing people on all sides. So I just need to get the story. And it was so much work. But I would say by season five, I, I won't say I've mastered it, but I am much better at sitting in the silence and just letting someone think. And, and I've realized, yes, incredible moments come from that. And I can't help but think all the moments I've missed in life because I just keep talking. See what you did, I.D.? <laughs> The last season, the final final season, season. she got got it it. right. Yeah, and then they said, oh, the show's done. You know what, we got to cancel this show. I finally understand how to do it. I can only remember ever doing one real interrogation. I mean, of course, I've done cross-examinations and everything in trial. Of course, my law school put me on the honor code committee. And these two kids had written research and writing papers first year. And they were identical and they knew too little about the law to know there was no reason that they would have cited all these cases in the same exact order. So there were 37 cases that were all cited in the exact same order. So instead I put these papers in front of them and I pulled the calculator out and I said, do you know what the statistical chances of two separate things coming up with 37 variables in the same order doing the math, it's like one in a billion. Did you get them? Did they crack? 10 minutes later, one comes in, squeals on the other. Minutes later, the other one comes in. That is the greatest thing ever. You know, in my book, The Case, the the book that I just wrote, uh, I had nothing on that case. I had no real evidence. And then the the one breaking point to where I could finally get somebody charged and get some justice for this family, it took three suspects that were involved turning against each other and finally telling on each other. And that's how we finally got that case closed. So, yeah. Yeah, I understand that completely. It's, it's the Columbo approach. Remember Columbo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Columbo yeah. figuring out oh, how yeah. you have 37 right. cases in the same order as this guy. <laughs> right. Wait, Chris would do that often with, with his interviews. I enjoyed those moments. Now right. explain to me the odds here. Yeah, and I'm thinking, oh, man, don't respond to that. Don't answer. <laughs> Speaking of reasonable doubt, before before we leave tonight, Justin, we really want to talk to you briefly about the case of Rodney Patrick McNeil. It was on Reasonable Doubt. So it's the first episode of season five. This episode was called Guiltless or Heartless. Chris, why don't you give us just a brief summary of Rodney's case, and then we can talk about how our case has intersected with the Innocence Project. On March 10th, 1997, Rodney Patrick McNeil arrived home at about 12.30 p.m. to take his wife, Deborah, to the doctor's appointment. He discovered that she was brutally murdered. Deborah was six months pregnant at the time. She was found lying in a bathtub of the master bedroom with a jar of pennies and clothes dumped on top of her. As per Rodney, he tried to lift Deborah out of the tub, but was unable to. After unsuccessfully trying to find the cordless house phone, he ran over to his neighbor's house and asked them to call 911. When police arrived, they discovered that the house had been trashed, furniture slashed, and a wall unit knocked over, a trail of blood from the living room to the master bedroom. At the time of Deborah's murder, Rodney worked as a probation officer in San Bernardino County. According to the phone records and eyewitnesses, Rodney Patrick McNeil was at the office until 12.15 and arrived home just before 12.30 p.m., shortly before the 911 call was placed. Police officers arrived at the crime scene at around 12.32 p.m., which would make it difficult, if not impossible, for Patrick to ransack the house in that time frame. 
Despite this, Rodney was arrested in 1997 for the murder of Deborah. Police theorized that Rodney Patrick McNeil and Deborah got into an argument when he arrived home to take her to the doctor's office. In a fit of rage, he killed her. The jury convicted Patrick of second-degree murder, and the court sentenced him to 30 years to life in prison. In 2006, the California Innocence Project filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus on Patrick's behalf. The petition presented evidence of a third-party culpability, namely Patrick's half-brother, Jeffrey, who supposedly killed Deborah. Although Rodney had been denied parole in recent years, on October 28th, Patrick was released on parole after 25 years in prison. Now, Justin, tell us your thoughts on Patrick's case. I don't know where to begin. What was compelling about the case that made the Innocence Project pick it up? The timeline to start with. I mean, with every case, it's like what piques our interest. We get thousands of requests a year. We can only take on a certain amount. Um, it, It just didn't make any sense that this guy who had no history of any kind of violence like this um, would suddenly do one of the most violent crime scenes I've seen in my career. I mean, it was absolutely brutal in a bathtub. Yeah, we'll never forget That's those like, images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just gruesome. And the, so it didn't make sense to me that he would have done this. And the timeline see, it was extremely compelling. And that's what started us in the journey down the case. Now, what ultimately convinced me of Patrick's innocence was his brother's friend who told me that, uh, you know, the brother had confessed to him that he did the killing and explained why. And the explanation was that the brother was the one who'd actually set Patrick up with his wife. And he went by the house that morning. He saw that the wife, who was suffering some depression, mental issues, had torn the house up. That got him into a rage. And he killed her, and then he left. And then Patrick came home and found his dead wife. And as I started to look into, as we started looking into it, the California Innocence Project, it was crazy the stuff we were finding out about his brother. Um, I remember this woman telling me that he, the brother had tied her up in a garage and poured gasoline on her and threatened to set her on fire. Another person telling me that one time at a family picnic, he put a, a dog into a cooler and drown the dog in front of kids. Um, and, oh. and this friend was telling me that sometimes they'd be driving around and he'd say, I, I got to beat somebody up. And he would just pull over the side of the road and beat somebody up for no reason. And one of the reasons we lost Patrick's hearing was the guy who had said that the brother had confessed. He came to the hearing to testify. And the day he came to the hearing, the judge says, as they often do, I'm sorry, counsel, we don't have time for this case today. You guys are all going to have to come back in a week. And this guy was a long-distance truck driver. And he says to the judge, judge, I don't know if I can do that. I've, I've, I've got to drive out east. And the judge says, sir, you will appear in this court next week. And, of course, the guy doesn't show up. The judge issues a bench warrant. I then convince him to come back into court. He comes back in. As soon as he walks in the court, the judge says, sir, did I not order you to be back here last week? And he said, yeah, I was driving out east. And he says, take him into custody. And takes him to custody. This guy who's just a witness oh, trying to help man. out the court with testimony, puts him in a jumps, brings him out in shackles. Then we can't finish that afternoon. So they put him in jail. And by the next morning when he testifies, he's angry. 
understandably. Mm-hmm. He's not a good witness. And we end up losing that hearing. That happens a lot. It really does. I mean, this the exact facts are, are different and crazy, but it happens a lot where witnesses come in to want to cooperate and give information and possibly help exonerate someone. And then they're either triggered by the prosecution or even the defense if they become a little hostile. Now they're not cooperating anymore. And it's unfortunate to see these stories that you may have received in an environment that wasn't that hostile, one where they were sitting and they were just totally opening up and giving all the responses without you even asking questions, just telling the story. And then they get up on the stand and it's gone and nobody really ever gets to hear the real truth. I love that. I love that you said that because that is my greatest frustration as a lawyer Mm -hmm. is that we know what really happened out on the street and and we hear things in a different way, but we have to be able to present it in court in a way that's credible to the judge. I mean, for example, in another case, the guy Miles case where my guy gets convicted of robbing this bank in Orange County, even though he'd never been to Orange County, we actually brought all the guys in who did it and admitted to doing it. And the judge is saying, well, I know that you're just admitting it, sir, because the statute of limitations is run. And meanwhile, I know that the night before in the hotel, I'm sitting there with this guy and he's saying, I don't care about statute of limitations. I'm a black man walking into a court in California admitting to right. an armed robbery. I'm right. going to be in prison tomorrow. But, you know, I know it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. He was completely sure he was going to prison by giving right. that test. And that, that's always what's frustrating is like there's things you know, mm-hmm. but you can't present them. And then there's just dumb stuff that happens. There's a there's a procedure that happens and the environment is different once you're in that courtroom and you just can't get that that real story out. And we had this uh, in a recent conversation, Chris, when we talked Bone Valley and how there's a case he's trying to get a man exonerated and check out Bone Valley if if you haven't already heard about the podcast. It's fantastic. But one of the things is is they have somebody this person has said over and over on numerous occasions that I committed that crime. But when he gets into that environment in the courtroom and he feels the hostility from the judge and everyone he just doesn't want to cooperate anymore so the truth doesn't come out and justice is not served and it's a really scary thing and as attorneys it's extremely frustrating because we know that one-on-one what that person is capable of but you can't present that to a judge hey judge look Mm -hmm. at this look when we were in the room and i wasn't even saying much and he was just telling the story and he had all these facts suddenly he's on the stand he doesn't remember those things he said right because He's been in jail now. He's not in his normal prison. He doesn't have access to things that he had when he was in prison. Now he's just in a local jail. So everything changes. Absolutely. But so many factors go into that. I mean, I remember one case once my witness went south on me and I remember going over to the council table. I said, I can't see the light anymore. I can't need some direction. Like, I, I don't even know where I'm going at this point. This witness is not the same person I've been talking to. They've gone completely off the farm and I don't, yeah. I can't get it back. And you just mm-hmm. sit there and you try to think of another yeah. strategy and the judges get impatient. And, and then you're just beating yourself up for the next year about it. Of like, how could I have done that better? How could I have? It, it's, it's not like for a everybody. It's a tap dance in there. It's, it's really tough. It's, that is not for everybody. Um. Rodney's case, I have to say, was very interesting to us because based on their history, witnesses who knew the family, the friend who was there with Deborah that day, who had learned what Deborah and Rodney had been going through the days leading up to her murder, 
um, her daughters and what they had witnessed, um, just the volatility in that marriage, the fact mm-hmm. that she was having an incredible emotional breakdown that could almost lead anybody else, any spouse who's trying to be rational and calm to also kind of lose their mind. It, all of those things were possibilities in this case. And so the thing that was a trip to me in this case as a defense attorney was I could definitely see maybe not the manner in which it occurred because that was almost savage and animalistic. It was so awful. And the fact that she was pregnant, I don't even want to get into the detail, but um, just the motive, the motive of somebody just broke, he lost it and, and he did this to his wife because nobody else really had that motive. You could see that. And so as we're going through the case, you're thinking, I mean, this makes sense. Not that he's capable of doing that. Somebody who's never showed any kind of rage like this, any kind of violence, but who knows, maybe he cracked. But then you get down to this one thing you cannot ignore. And it was the main thing in our case. And I think it was compelling for Chris as well, even though he felt like who else could have done this um, was that timeline. That timeline, you couldn't get around it. You just can't. It's somebody in the office saying he was sitting in his office. There's two people going to lunch. He goes in the elevator with them. He's not rushing. He's not running to the parking lot. There's a Word document he was working on that's timestamped. Exactly. All of these things show there is no way he could have gotten home in that amount of time, done all that to the living room, killed her, and then ran to the neighbors to call 911. It it was just impossible. And so... It makes you think, right, who who was on that phone, who was in that document? There's nobody else. It's him. So we could not ignore that timeline. So I had the chance to sit down with Mike Ramos. We actually were at his home. And so every I'm sorry, so that everybody listening knows Mike Ramos was the prosecuting attorney on this case. And he later became the district attorney in, in San Bernardino County um, for many years. And but I was curious how did you overcome the timeline? Just tell me, because how do you, how can you talk to a group of jurors, rational human beings, rational thinking people, and explain to them all these things that happened, but then say, "Mm, by the way, he would have only had 15 minutes. It took 11 minutes to get to the house. I, I can't remember all of it, but I do know that timeline was tight and impossible. So how do you get those people to make that leap? Because There's all this other information that is speculative. That's all it is. It's like, oh, it could fit. But then there's this where it is not speculative. It cannot fit. It cannot happen. And do you know his response to me was, "Um, I think I just told them, you know, phones at the time had a little margin of error with a couple of minutes off here or there. And I said, and I don't even think they put this on the show. I was a little upset about it, but maybe they didn't want me grilling, you know, Mike Ramos in his house. He was so friendly to look invite us in. But I was so frustrated. And I said, wait a minute, that was good enough for the jury. And he said, well, that and all the ev- other evidence I presented, it was obviously good enough for the jury. And I said, did you bring in any kind of phone expert to talk about these phones? How many minutes they could have been off? Do, do you know exactly how many, many minutes they could have been off? And he goes, I don't know. I just had somebody who had told me back then who worked for the telephone company and said "Mm, they could be a few minutes off. And I said, so we're talking like two or three minutes or 10 minutes. He goes, I really don't know. I think it's within 10 minutes. Well, on reasonable doubt, we were able to confirm maybe two to three minutes at most. And that still would not give him enough time. And so for us, I think that sealed the deal. Right, Chris? I mean, it just ultimately it was like we have to offer help in this case, which we did. 
did end up turning down the help because, you know, he was already going through the parole process. So he didn't want to screw that up naturally. Um, but it, it's still something that I think a lot of people could see why and how he could have done it, why he would have done it. But that timeline just, you know, was impossible. This brother now, I asked Mr. Ramos about the brother as well. And he had said the brother lived in Vegas and he had an alibi around that time. He didn't come from Vegas to do this. But I have to ask you, I do have to ask you, Justin. So you're telling me that the brother came and not, he couldn't have done this for Patrick because at the end of the day, he set his brother up if he did do it. He didn't save his brother. He set him up. So you're telling me that your theory is that Jeff did come and that Jeff committed this crime because Jeff was angry with her and wanted to kill her. And then he just leaves. He kills her and then he just leaves. And he doesn't yeah. tell his brother. Or I mean, I got to cross-examine him in our hearing. We brought him in. And this guy was so flip about this entire thing. He was making a joke out of it. I mean, here it is, a, a homicide case. And his sister-in-law is murdered. His brother's in prison for it. And he was just just laughing about mm -hmm. stuff. Um, it, it all made sense to me after seeing him and seeing his demeanor and then hearing the story from his friend. And it's, again, it's one of those situations where if, if the judge had gone around and talked to all the witnesses out of court and mm -hmm. seen exactly what happened. And then another factor in it too that we haven't mentioned is the sister there's both of their sister right mm -hmm. waited until the day of the hearing to then tell me over breakfast at the nearby hotel oh yeah he actually told me he did it as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you put it on the stand of course the da goes berserk with this why wasn't this on the witness list why wasn't this revealed so like i just you know heard about yeah. it over breakfast at the courtyard mary she told us too and and it was believable that they thought he did it but I like what you said there, too, because what you said is really profound. And it's that the and what makes sense, what Mike Ramos would say, who, by the way, put on his website, there's never been a wrongful conviction in the history of San Bernardino County, <laughs> which just goes to just that's where, he's coming, yeah, that's where he's coming from. Like, these just don't even happen. That's why he fought us tooth and nail in the Bill Richards case for nearly 20 Another years. Another great case in the but, book. Yeah. And another case where somebody came home and found their wife dead mm -hmm. and then yeah. ended up being prosecuted wrong. murder, yeah. Well, what you said is exactly right. And what Ramos said works. You said you have this motive. You have a dead body in a horrible situation. The jury wants it closed. They've already kind of predisposed towards that. They're predisposed against the defendant. And I always tell my law students that. I'm like, don't think as a defense attorney you can go into court. You're up because they have the burden of proof. You no. are down two touchdowns with two minutes to go. That's the story of our life, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're you're the one standing next to the person in shackles, the orange jumpsuit, mm -hmm. and they're going to be the police and the prosecutor. so behind in that race. Yeah. And they're going to have a reason. It's not going to be no reason. And that's also the thing in every one of our cases, I say to my students, there's a reason that people get convicted. It's not like no yeah. reason. Mm -hmm. So you're right. In this case, you have motive. You have them on the scene. You have all this stuff going for you. And then you have this timeline. And what does Ramos just have to say to the jury to get them to rationalize their way towards convicting? He just says, well, maybe those numbers aren't right. And then they go, oh, OK, because that's and where the they defense want to go presented anyway. nothing to counter that, which sickens me even more. Yeah. And that's where they want to go, because the truth is 
we make up our mind about things and then we rationalize our way to that decision we already made. That's absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So are you all still fighting Rodney's case? I'm still trying to get an exoneration on it because right now he is paroled. So his life yeah. still looks like a parolee, right? He he has the conviction. It's going to follow him. And I know getting paroled was tough because I met with Deborah's daughters. Woo! They, I mean, they broke my heart. They are fighters. They really believe he did this. It sickens them at the thought that he's out. And so they've been fighting it this whole time. and They'll continue to do so. But um, where does his case stand now with the Innocent Project? So the way we got him out is, is I advocated to the governor. One thing we didn't talk about is a number of years ago, I identified 12 cases that I believe people were innocent and I was very frustrated with. And I came up with this crazy, stupid idea one night that I would write clemency petitions for them. And then I would walk those clemency petitions from San Diego to Sacramento to make a big point and Mm -hmm. get the media to say, why is this crazy law professor walking across California? Yeah. And uh, I ended up doing it with two lawyers in my office and we walked 712 miles. Took us 50 days to do it. Mm -hmm. And we presented those clemency petitions to then Jerry Brown. Um, We got almost nowhere. He granted one of them of reducing client's sentence and then we were able to get him out. But Gavin Newsom was a lot more generous and Gavin Newsom actually granted clemency to Patrick, reducing his sentence and making him parolable. Then there was a lot of pressure put on the governor from the family who I greatly sympathize with that, you know, lost their mother and have been told by the prosecution for years that Patrick's the guilty party. And that's, this is a common thing, obviously, in our world, that families are going along with that. And, um, and the next thing you know, the governor is actually blocking his parole. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. governor reduced his sentence so he could parole, which was the first time that's happened in my career. And then we went through the parole process all again. And then the governor didn't block it the second time around. And we got Patrick out. So where does this case stand? Yeah, exactly. As you said, he's, he's been paroled. Um, but we, you know, we lost his habeas petition once to prove his innocence. It's very hard to once you presented all that evidence in a habeas hearing to get another one. So I don't know. I think maybe it's got possibility of a pardon if he's out for a period of time and he's, he's living well and following the rules, but that's also very difficult in a homicide case. Yeah. Most of those pardons are in like simple drug cases. Mm-hmm. So I don't well, know. Well, I'm sure he's just happy to be home, happy to be out. And we had met, we had the pleasure of meeting his daughter and his sister. So I know they are so grateful to have him home. But yeah, our hearts do break also for Deborah's family because in their mind, they didn't receive justice. But very interesting case. And kudos to the Innocence Project on just not giving up that fight. I have. One final question for you, and this is probably more of a personal question I'd like to know. What, how do you keep going when, when you're knocked down and you're discouraged and you're being told no over and over? How do you pick up, go back to the office, pick up another case and keep going? I mean, first, I have a great team. Um, I, I don't think I could have done this work for this many years by myself. I think I will have fallen apart at some point, but I've got a great team of young lawyers or all my former students. And then every year I get a a new group of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed law students who are all enthusiastic and ready to go and out there and save the world. 
So my team really pumps me up. Mm. My family really pumps me up. I try to stay mentally strong. I exercise every morning. I try to eat right. I try to take care of myself. Like I said, I go to Northern England every summer and hide for a little while at my old cottage. And I just try Balance. to do this. Yeah, Balance yeah. and community. That's great. What would we do without it? Chris, yeah, you have you any gotta, other questions? Yeah. I think that's all I have. Well, uh, we um, we have gone way over, but Justin, it's just, it, there's so many things we could talk about. Honestly, the book coming out that you can order right now on Amazon is You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And yes, that is true. And we've seen it happen over and over with the Innocence Project, with Reasonable Doubt. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you for being on the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast and sharing your stories with us. And we're just excited for the book to come out. Everybody, go support. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And family, there you have it. Another exciting episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Join us again next week where we'll have more crime. And Chris will drink more cookie juice. (laughs) Take care, guys. See you next week. Stay safe.